At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks, then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After you listen to today's show, head over and listen to the latest episodes of For the Ages, the podcast from the New York Historical Society exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein invites the foremost historians and creative thinkers onto the show for a conversation on a wide range of topics. In a conversation with Tom Brokaw, one of the most respected and trusted figures in U.S. broadcast journalism, will give you insights into his prolific life and career, delivering the news to millions of Americans. And we also think that you'll enjoy Rubenstein's conversation with Annette Gordon-Reed, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family, where you'll discover the private life of Thomas Jefferson, our enigmatic third president's vision of himself, the revolution, and the American experiment taking shape around him. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. The Bowery Boys episode 400, Jacob Reese, the other half of the Gilded Age. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And also, this is episode 400. It is our 400th. Not to be confused, of course, with Mrs. Astor's 400, the number of elite New Yorkers who, according to legend, comprised high society. But today we're going to the flip side of that Gilded Age fantasy, the New York City that few of those wealthy folks were even aware of before the contributions of an intrepid reporter, photographer, and social activist named Jacob Rees. For our 400th show, we're celebrating one of the most important men of the Gilded Age, the man who wrote one of the most important books in New York City's history, How the Other Half Lives, a landmark study of the so-called tenement slums of Lower Manhattan and the harsh living conditions of those who live there. Now, let's be frank here. They weren't really the other half. They were far more than half of the city's population by the book's publication in the year 1890. Reese's work was aimed at those who often looked away or who were at least very unaware of the vast problems faced by the more than one million people who lived in poverty-stricken quarters of the city. 
He brought those issues to people's attention in very innovative ways, investigative reporting, books, lectures, and even photography. Reese was more than an ideas man. He was also an urban planner. He was an agent of social reform and a media innovator. And he was also an immigrant himself, moving here from Reba, Denmark. Theodore Roosevelt, who would become his good friend, by the way, called Jacob Reese the, quote, model American citizen. But it would be his skills as a writer that had been honed by years as a reporter in the city that transported his reader inside the very tenements that he was condemning. In chapter four of How the Other Half Lives, he writes, Suppose we look into one on Cherry Street. Be a little careful, please. The hall is dark and you might stumble over the children pitching pennies back there. Not that it would hurt them. Kicks and cuffs are their daily diet. They have little else. Here, where the hall turns and dives into utter darkness, is a step. And another. Another. A flight of stairs. You can feel your way if you cannot see it. Close? Yes. What would you have? All the fresh air that ever enters these stairs comes from the hall door that is forever slamming, and from the windows of dark bedrooms that in turn receive from the stairs their sole supply of the elements God meant to be free. That was a woman filling her pail by the hydrant you just bumped against. The sinks are in the hallway that all the tenants may have access and all be poisoned alike by their summer stenches. Hear the pumps squeak. It is the lullaby of tenement house babes. In summer, when a thousand thirsty throats pant for a cooling drink in this block, it is worked in vain. But the saloon, whose open door you passed in the hall, is always there. The smell of it has followed you up. Reese's writing and later influence set New York on a new course, out of the Gilded Age and into the Progressive Era. His photographs are some of the earliest and most famous images ever taken of life in the late 19th century. So join us as we investigate the incredible life story of Danish-American journalist and photographer Jacob Rees. So, Greg, I am going to start the show today many, many miles away from the tenements of Five Points. We're actually going to the small medieval town of Reba, Denmark, where on May 3rd, 1849, Jacob Rees was born. Reba, Denmark is about 175 miles west of Copenhagen on the country's west coast. Jacob was number three of 14 children. Uh, his father, Niels Edvard, was an esteemed schoolmaster in town who spoke several languages. They were a very well-respected family in this, you know, in this very picturesque little Danish village. Very romantic, like yes. a Disney feature. I can picture little birds singing as you're describing that. <laughs> you think that's romantic. According to Reese, his father also regularly was paid to decipher messages that washed ashore inside bottles. <laughs> I, mean, I like that job, though. But apparently it happened quite often to him, or at least enough to mention it years later in a biography. But Niels, his father, 
also wrote for the local newspaper uh, to make some extra money. And already when Jacob was a boy, his father had great literary hopes for him. Jacob learned English as a boy by reading the works of Charles Dickens. His father openly declared Jacob to be his smartest child, even allowed him to help him out on some of his newspaper work. I think it sounds like Jacob's got it pretty good. Why would he want to leave any of this? Well, I mean, his father was also quite cold and domineering, and Jacob rebelled by being a bad (laughs) student. He was in the bottom of his class. He flunked fourth grade. All of this, mind you, while, while reading Dickens in English at home mind you. (laughs) And Jacob's life was also not without tragedy. Several of his siblings died while still children, many to tuberculosis. And only Jacob and his older sister, Sophie, would live past the age of 30. A grim reminder of life expectancy at this time, and a lesson to take as we move forward in the story. And these experiences, of course, would shape him and develop as well his particular passion for children's welfare. But I think the big story was that Jacob rebelled against his father, dropped out of school at 15, taking a job as a carpenter for a textile mill, which was in town. And it was there while working at this mill over his lunch break that he fell deeply in love with his boss's daughter, a girl named Elizabeth Nielsen. He later wrote about it at length in his autobiography, The Making of an American. That first contact, he wrote, quote, On the bridge, a boy and a girl have met. He whistled a tune, boy fashion, with jackets slung across his arm, on his way home from the carpenter shop to his midday meal. When she has passed, he stands looking after her, all the music gone out of him. At the other end of the bridge, she turns with the feeling that he is looking, and, when she sees that he is, goes on with a little toss of her pretty head. And their following encounters would be even more dramatic. I mean, at one point, he was so distracted by her while he was working with an axe, okay, that he accidentally chopped off the end of a finger, um, and he had to have it reattached. And another time, he saw her while he was working... He was so distracted that he fell off a scaffold. So she's basically like a workplace hazard. (laughs) Unfortunately for Jacob, they were of different social classes. She was just simply outside his reach. And in 1865, a 16-year-old Jacob Reese moved to Copenhagen to start an apprenticeship as a carpenter. Two years later, Elizabeth would actually move to Copenhagen as well, and Reese continued this obsession with her, even though she just basically ignored all of his advances, and they both moved back home around 1869. So he's back home, finished with his apprenticeship, and 20 years old. She's 17, and and he made a move. He asked her to marry him. By letter, he wrote her a letter delivered by his mother on October 17th, 1869. Mm -hmm. And then he waited at home, sweating it out. When her response came, Jacob, I will never be able to love you. And the following spring in 1870, he decided to break away like thousands of Danes before him and try to find something new in America. He possessed $40, 40 American dollars given to him as a send-off present by friends, and he crossed over to Glasgow and from there boarded the Iowa, 
a steamship that was carrying hundreds of passengers, um, including Irish, Swedes, Scots, British, Poles, and four Danes, um, including Reese. And they arrived on June 5th at Castle Garden in New York. Yes, in this period, the immigrant processing station was in Battery Park, Castle Garden. It would be over two decades before Ellis Island would even open. Now, did he know where he was going? Well, he arrived with just two contacts, including the Danish council, but both of his contacts were out of the country at the time. So he got a room in a hostel, and he quickly got a taste of what this new country offered, you know, the thousands of people who were arriving daily, as he and a friend that he had made quickly signed up to work for the Great Western Iron Works, which was a mining company located outside of Pittsburgh. So almost immediately, just days after arriving in New York, he and his friend were on this train heading for the mines where he toiled in various jobs, including inside the blackest, darkest mines for which he was paid pennies. You can see by this time already that he's getting familiarized with all the hardships of newly arriving immigrants. These are happening to him. He's going to take these experiences to heart. Yes, right from the beginning here in the mines. Um, And that would actually start a whole litany of jobs and adventures and misadventures that would certainly shape him. Now, when the Franco-Prussian War broke out in July of 1870, he quit the mining job and he volunteered to join the French forces. He was desperate to avenge Germany because Germany earlier, a few years before, had invaded Denmark. But none of the French authorities in New York would take him on. Nobody wanted to sign him into the French army, even though he was desperate to serve. They didn't want him. So he was basically stuck in New York, right? Where was he even living? Nowhere, really. I mean, he had sold off nearly all of his possessions. He drifted for days in the greater New York region. He was relying on moments of kindness, sporadic moments of kindness of strangers, um, like there was a Catholic monk that helped him out. Um, he got odd jobs, picking cucumbers, laying bricks. He was very transient, sort of drifting by day, looking for food. Many nights, he was just looking for a place to sleep that was safe, where he could avoid thieves, where he could avoid the police coming along and hitting him with a club. So the year is 1870. And Manhattan, the city of New York, is bursting with nearly one million people. The beginning of the Gilded Age. But mm-hmm. Jacob Reese is not enjoying any of the fruits of the Gilded Age. He's fallen on hard times. And his low point late that fall came when he nearly jumped into the East River. And he would have to spare himself any more humiliations But he was rescued, in a way, by a dog who attached himself to Reese and who provided some companionship to him at at this darkest hour. And so instead, Jacob headed to a police station on Church Street where he could sleep for free. The police offered the most basic of all furnishings, just a simple plank of wood, He headed in, leaving his dog outside on the stoop to wait for him. And after an evening of kind of getting into arguments with the other men present, he finally fell asleep. He wrote later, quote, In the middle of the night, I awoke with a feeling that 
something was wrong. I felt for the little gold locket I wore under my shirt that was my last link with home. It was gone. I had felt it there the last thing before I fell asleep. One of the tramp lodgers had cut the string and stolen it. With angry tears, I went up and complained to the sergeant that I had been robbed. He scowled at me over the blotter, called me a thief, and said that he had a good mind to lock me up. How should I, a tramp boy, have come by a gold locket? All my sufferings rose up before me. All the bitterness of my soul poured itself out upon him. I do not know what I said. I remember that he told the doorman to put me out, and he seized me and threw me out of the door, coming after to kick me down the stoop. My dog had been waiting, never taking his eyes off the door, until I should come out. When it saw me in the grasp of the doorman, it fell upon him at once, fastening its teeth in his leg. He let go with me a yell of pain, seized the poor little beast by the legs, and beat it to death against the stone steps. At the sight, a blind rage seized me. Raving like a madman, I stormed the police station with paving stones from the gutter. And from there, Reese was escorted to the nearest ferry where he crossed to Jersey City. And then he was off on this epic journey, his wanderings outside New York, all the way down to Philly before heading to upstate New York. There were moments of happiness when he stayed with friendly families, followed by hungry periods of wandering the countryside, looking for odd jobs, working on farms. For a while, he was a door-to-door salesman for a cabinet-making company for which he traveled through throughout Pennsylvania and Ohio. But then, suddenly inspired to win back Elizabeth, he decided to dedicate himself to becoming a telegraph operator. He'd need time for that, so he threw himself into a job as an iron salesman in Pennsylvania, in which he he strangely succeeded, and he was able to save up quite a bit of cash. Unfortunately, that May, he received news from Denmark, from his sister Caroline, that Elizabeth, the girl he loved, was to be married to a Danish war hero, Lieutenant Raymond Bauman. Mm, So another wave of devastation. You know, it's like this door had been shut. But also, this is kind of liberating, right? Well, right, because now there really wasn't anything pulling him back to Denmark. He could focus for once on his life here and his his future here. And we'll get to his future in New York and how he changed how New Yorkers saw their city right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. 
The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So in the fall of 1873, Jacob Rees found himself finally training at a telegraph school in Jersey City. He had the the money for it now. And as another possible occupation while going to school, he also hit the streets of Manhattan, selling books door to door, selling Charles Dickens, actually, door to door to make a living with a new dog companion by his side, a dog named Bob. A dog named Bob? (laughs) That's a a surprising detail. Again, I mean, this sounds like a... A romantic pull them up, you know, by their bootstraps, Horatio Alger <laughs> moment. I can see the door to door book salesman with Bob. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it wasn't exactly romantic, it turns out, because they hadn't eaten in two days when Reese sat on the steps of Cooper Union in Astor Place and heard a familiar voice, that of his principal from the telegraph school who just happened to be in town. Hmm. To quote from Reese's autobiography, Why, what are you doing here? He asked. I told him Bob and I were just resting after a day of canvassing. Books, he snorted. They won't make you rich. Now, how would you like to be a reporter if you've got nothing better to do? The manager of a news agency downtown asked me today to find him a bright young fellow whom he could break in. It isn't much... $10 a week to start with, but I know it's better than peddling books. 
$10 a week. Do you have any idea what that translates to today? Well, about $250 a week. So not great, not a livable mm -hmm. wage, but it was a new line of work, right? So that's exciting. And the employer, the New York News Association, well, they produced basic news items for various papers. So it was here that Reese picked up his skills as a journalist, reporting on murders, robberies, and other sorts of seedy news. It was also, by the way, in English. I mean, let us not forget the fact that this was not his mother tongue. And this would be, of course, key to his success, is that he would have great command of English. In fact, he was so successful that he moved on to a Brooklyn newspaper called the South Brooklyn News, located at Fifth Avenue and 9th Street in Park Slope. Here he really excelled at similar local stories. And by 1874, he had earned his very first byline. Oh, cool. I mean, seeing his name in print for the first time, which really wasn't that common back in the day. But he would be able to print his own name as many times as he wanted because, believe it or not, <laughs> this man who's, who was down on his luck just a few minutes ago, he actually saved enough money and I think it was probably a cheap buy, that he actually bought the newspaper. Whoa. He wrote, The news was a big four-page sheet. Literally every word in it I wrote myself. I was my own editor, reporter, publisher, and advertising agent. My pen kept two printers busy all the week and left me time to canvas for advertisements, attend meetings, and gather the news. I mean, it sounds like a blast, right? It's really <laughs> yes. in this way then, in his own Park Slope newspaper, that Jacob Reese gave himself this crash course in becoming a journalist. Talk about like a career turning your life around, right? I mean, if mm -hmm. this was a movie, I would love to see the montage sequence here of Jacob doing all of these <laughs> jobs, you know, interviewing people, mocking up a front page, haggling with advertisers, right? He even ran the plates of the paper himself down to Publishers Row in Manhattan to get printed. Then he himself picked up the finished copies at midnight. Maybe I'm hearing like a, an upbeat soft rock anthem <laughs> underneath. Like a, a Kenny Loggins song. A Kenny Loggins song, a little cutaway to Bob, you know, kind of like tilting <laughs> his head in the corner. It gave him financial independence and clearly a lot of confidence for he then wrote a letter to Elizabeth. Now, where you last left us, she had gotten engaged. Yes, to a lieutenant. But sadly, in the intervening years, her fiancé had died of tuberculosis. Now, she had actually not really given much thought to Jacob at all, you know, since rejecting his earlier proposal. But eventually, she had a change of heart, and she wrote him back saying that she would marry him. And so in 1876, Jacob Rees sold the paper and then sailed back to Denmark where he and Elizabeth then married on March 5th in the beautiful old Reba Cathedral, and they lived happily ever after. Happily ever after, but not in Denmark. Oh, no, because Reese was now a New Yorker. Or should I say, actually, more specifically, he was a Brooklynite, mm -hmm. for they moved back and lived in a boarding house near Prospect Park. 
He was, of course, a bit cash-strapped because he had now had a growing family. The Reeses would end up having three children. So, you know, he needed to make some money and decided to dabble in a new field, and an odd field, actually, advertising by way of a magic lantern. Ooh, magic lanterns. And we're not talking Mm -hmm. about genies in a bottle here. A magic lantern is a type of precursor to motion pictures. Actually, remember those overhead projectors, you know, just to date ourselves here, that they had in high school back in the day, which projected a single image upon a screen. So it's kind of like that. Well, Reese picked up one of those magic lanterns, or stereopticons, and traveled throughout Long Island, giving shows with very colorful, bright views of foreign places, heavily interspersed with advertisements of local businesses. As he would later write, quote, I liked my advertising scheme. I advertised nothing I would not have sold the people myself, and I gave it to them in a way that was distinctly pleasing and good for them. For my pictures were a real work of art, not the cheap trash you see nowadays on street screens. <laughs> and this might sound like a fun side project for him, but this this whole Magic Lantern experience would soon actually have a profound impact on his career. And the road to that more serious work began in 1877, when he got hired at the New York Tribune, the newspaper founded in 1841 by Horace Greeley. Now, at first, Reese was doing the same type of story that he had written for the South Brooklyn paper. That's kind of what recommended him for this job. But he was quickly promoted to a very juicy position, that of police reporter stationed at the police headquarters at 300 Mulberry Street, just a few blocks north from the heart of the neighborhood of Five Points. And it would be this neighborhood where Reese would find his calling, not only as a journalist, but also as an activist. And a part of that has to do with what a police officer did back in the 1870s, the very functions of New York law enforcement back in the day. We think of the police today in somewhat stable terms, but in fact, the role of urban law enforcement has been constantly changing. A couple years ago, in a show that I recorded on the very first ambulance, Mm -hmm. that's episode 329, I talked about the police's role in getting injured people or sick people to the hospital. You know, today we have EMS workers and a whole ambulance corps that picks up that function. But back in the 1870s um, and 80s, it was the police who provided this kind of service. Yeah, and so much more. They were embedded within the neighborhood, for better or for worse. According to the authors Bonnie Yokelson and Daniel Citram, quote, Policemen of the day were very visible public agents, particularly for the poor and the recent immigrants. They routinely provided lodging and sometimes food for the indigent, helped lost children find their parents, aided accident victims, stopped runaway horses, fished unidentified bodies out of the harbor, and removed dead animals from the street. The NYPD also oversaw the work of the Board of Elections, Hmm. unquote. So then for Reese to to report on the activities of the police department would have been a far more expansive role than just covering the crimes and arrests. Mm -hmm. 
And that's the key to Reese's unique insight into the problems of New York's impoverished, or as he would later call them, the other half. Keep in mind, in many ways, he could relate to the plight of the immigrant and those in poverty, of course. At the same time, that expansive set of police responsibilities also had a dark side, right? There was Mm -hmm. police abuse, injustice, vast corruption, including bribery. And Reese would sometimes call out those behaviors in the Tribune. But to be as successful as he was and to maintain his relationships, he couldn't probably be too critical. No, Reese, he even mostly praised, even fawned over the police department, often exalting the hires up themselves, in particular, Chief Inspector Thomas Burns, who was the head of the Detective Bureau. So there is definitely some access journalism going on here, Mm -hmm. giving a shine to police work in exchange for exclusives. Hmm. And how long was Reese a, a police reporter for the Tribune? From 1876 until 1888. So really an impressive run through a tumultuous and quickly changing era in New York's history. So during his 12-year tenure, New York City saw the arrival of the Statue of Liberty, the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, the operation of elevated train lines Hmm. in New York, the incredible rise in fortunes for New York's Gilded Age elite was going on. And of course, as we always come back to here these new, ever-larger waves of immigration. During this period, hundreds of thousands arrived from Russia and Eastern Europe, many settling on the Lower East Side, as we discussed in the last episode. But during the 1880s alone, over 300,000 immigrants came from the regions of Italy, and the Italians tended to settle in this area of Mulberry Street, in and around the Five Points area. And of course, closest to Reese's base of operations here at police headquarters. So when we describe Jacob Reese's journalistic beat here, it would really tend to focus on these immigrant groups on and around these downtown streets. So it sounds like Reese was spending more time not in the police stations, but actually in the tenement quarters themselves. Yeah, he begins working later and later hours, taking night shift duties, in fact, getting more comfortable with roaming about on his own. And according to his own testimony, he never felt unsafe, and he was even nicknamed Doc by some Mulberry Street residents as, you know, he had these little spectacles, which we haven't mentioned, and they make him look very distinguished. Mm -hmm. And also, it it seemed like he was always running to the scenes of accidents, Mm. as was his job. He observed conditions here and then documented them in increasingly melodramatic prose. In 1883, he wrote, On very hot nights, a sort of human shower regularly falls in the tenement districts of sleepers who fall off the roofs where they have sought refuge from the stifling atmosphere of their rooms. The sultriness of these human beehives with their sweltering, restless mass of feverish humanity, the sleep without rest, the silent suffering and the loud, the heat that scorches and withers, radiating from pavements and stone walls, the thousand stenches from the street, yard, and sink, the dying babies 
whose helpless wails met with no comforting response. The weary morning walks in the street, praying for a breath of fresh air for the sick child. The comfortless bed on the flags or on the fire escape. These are the sights to be encountered here. So his writing here is pretty powerful. It's also pretty grim. And it, it paints an image of residents in these buildings as as if they're one giant agonizing mass. And he would do this and be criticized for this later in much of his writing. But he also spent time exploring the cause of that agony, namely the, the living conditions. And here in the passage you just read, he was describing the, the consequences of the lack of fresh air in these tenement buildings. These tenements of, of which the vast east side was comprised of by the 1880s. As we've stated in several other shows, including last episode, the rise in immigrant numbers starting back in the 1830s necessitated some emergency housing options in the form of these four to seven story buildings crammed with people to the point of intolerable discomfort and danger. Although reformers had already identified the evils of tenement living and the so-called slums that they created, Successive waves of immigrants ensured that it would be incredibly difficult to thoroughly alleviate these problems. How could any city accommodate the numbers of people who were arriving here during this period? I mean, it's, there were so many people, and there is almost nowhere else for them to go but these slum quarters, of which there were quite a number in New York and Brooklyn, but the east side here was the most notorious. And this was the place where Jacob Rees met this humanitarian crisis head on, whether it was with witnessing murder scenes or visiting men and women in the tombs or out on Blackwell's Island. But certainly the area of New York best known as the focus of Rees's attention was Mulberry Bend in the Five Points neighborhood. It was famous as the site of gang activity in the mid-19th century, and by Reese's tenure, its squalor was infamous. He wrote, quote, Mulberry Bend was the foul core of New York's slum, a vast human pigsty. There is but one bend in the world, and it is enough. We know that Reese really did care to solve these terrible problems here. Um, that were afflicting the city, you know, and he had lots of firsthand experiences on these streets. But you just can't help but wince when somebody describes, you know, mm -hmm. a place as a, quote, vast human pigsty. So many of his descriptions strike us today as melodramatic, as sensationalistic, as cruel, in a few years, we would have a phrase that typified Reese's style, the muckraker, or reform activist journalist, with the aim of tackling big societal problems. Reese, in fact, is sometimes called the first muckraker, setting the stage for other journalists of the progressive era. But as you heard, he was also a flashy writer, very startling in its effect. I just wanted to add that Reese was still at the Tribune in 1887 when a reporter from the New York World 
named Nellie Bly, went even further than Reese and actually embedded herself within the Blackwell's Island Lunatic Asylum for a series of articles which ended up having as much influence as Reese's work did. And in fact, she also came out with her own groundbreaking book that was based on her own journalism. In her case, it was 10 Days in a Madhouse. Ah, but Reese would have something that I only wish Nellie Bly could have taken with her to the madhouse or, you know, on her tour around the world. And that was a camera. Mm. Now, remember, Reese was already open to the idea of visual medium with his magic lanterns here. Yeah, he was already showing pretty pictures and projecting advertisements. But photography seems like it would have been quite complicated in his time. I mean, in the 1870s and 80s. Photography was basically less than 50 years old when Reese began working as a police reporter in 1877. But by the 1880s, so just a few years later, there were many innovations in photo processing using dry plates, meaning that non-professionals, as in non-studio-based photographers, could start using cameras that were actually more portable than before. Mm. There were even amateur photographer clubs in the city by this time. Oh man, I would have loved to have seen the work of an 1880s (laughs) photography club. They've got to have some boxes of those old plates laying around somewhere. Well, so here's here's some examples, actually. Reese was friends with a man named John Nagel, who worked as the statistician at the health department. And John was also a member of the photo club. So Reese proposed to John a rather novel use for the camera, wandering the tenement districts at night, scoping out examples of human plight, deteriorating conditions, whatever it was. But wait, how were they planning to take pictures at night? Well, fortunately, a new invention was being used by Nagel's photography club, and that was flash powder, a mix of magnesium and potassium chlorate. So quite literally, a mini explosion which would illuminate a scene long enough for a lens then to capture the image. Kind of like a firecracker. Which is mm-hmm. not the safest thing I've ever heard of doing in a rundown neighborhood with plenty, I'm sure, of combustible things nearby. Nagel and Reese would be among the first people to ever use this technology in 1887. So these two men and others from the photography club began venturing out in the evening along Mulberry Bend at night, stopping when Reese saw something interesting to photograph. I mean, it's really a kind of strange scene to imagine here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the club members, the club members were testing out their new technology, and Reese was possibly pushing police reporting into a whole new territory here. But what did the subjects who were getting their photos taken think about the fact that they were being photographed? Did they even know that this was happening? Yeah, I mean, this was such a foreign concept that most people were mostly unaware of what was even happening, of of what they were doing. Nobody here had ever been in a photograph before, right? This is the late 1880s. It was so bizarre, this photo gang trolling the streets at night, creating little sparks and explosions. The other members of the photo club who actually handled and manipulated the camera soon got tired of these late-night dangerous experiments and bowed out. But Reese kept them up. 
he had a master plan, after all, that, that combined all of his skills and interests. He could bring together his slideshows and his police reporting, and also his honest concern for the well-being of people who were living in these rundown tenements. And he mm-hmm. thought that these pictures made into a new lecture of slideshows, a new magic lantern presentation, could really help him make this case. Okay, but explain something. How how could he continue to do this on his own without the photography club? He doesn't know how to use the camera and the flash paper and all this. Don't you kind of need some skills here? Well, he learned it by doing it to himself rather poorly at first. Um, he overexposed shots and he, you know, fumbled a lot with the flash. On one occasion, it became absolutely dangerous for the subjects that he was photographing. He wrote in his autobiography, quote, So I became a photographer after a fashion, and thereafter took the pictures myself. I substituted a frying pan for the flash, and flashed the light on that. But as I said, I am clumsy. Twice I set fire to the house with the apparatus. And once to myself, I blew the light into my own eyes on that occasion, and only my spectacles saved me from being blinded for life. Um, Not mentioned in that passage was the fact that this was in a small room on the top floor of a tenement that was housing six blind women. Reese panicked when he caught the room on fire and was able to help these poor women out of the room down to safety. But can you imagine the terror? There's a reason that the press had been calling Reese and his gang of friends here the intruders. But the press was also very sympathetic to him and for the part that he was playing in this new housing reform movement that was underway. We'll get to the publication of his most important work, How the Other Half Lives, after this. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So we know he's a reporter. Mm -hmm. And then also, on top of that, he's a slideshow operator. Yes, And he also had been delivering lectures about his experiences as a reporter. So he was 
again, planning to bring all of these together and to present a new Magic Lantern slideshow that contained these dramatic, never-before-seen images of the slums. And he would accompany that then with his expert commentary, first-hand reporters' mm -hmm. accounts about the plight of the city's poorest residents. And did he have enough shots like to fill out the show? Well, he needed more. And so, so he headed all over town. He headed for the potter's field of Hart Island, shooting a massive pit to line up a row of coffins. He headed into the city's most dangerous tenements and, and down back alleyways, you know, spending a lot of time along Mulberry Bend. And finally, on January 26, 1888, he presented his photos in a Magic Lantern show for the New York Association of Amateur Photographers on 36th Street. The name of his show was The Other Half, How It Lives and Dies in New York, illustrated with 100 photographic views. And the audience was awed by this presentation. Well, yeah, because they had probably never seen photos like these. The subject matter was revolutionary. You know, it wasn't glamorous. It was poverty. Yes, it wasn't entertaining the audience or inspiring the audience with beauty. This was challenging the audience. This was saying, look, this is happening in your city. And what do you plan to do about it? And... His presentation was quickly in demand elsewhere. He took the, the slideshow on the road throughout New York over the next few months, presenting in theaters and opera houses and places of worship. And meanwhile, the entire time, he continued working as a reporter. So when did this presentation become, you know, more than a Magic Lantern show? That spring in 1889. In his autobiography, Reese writes, quote, one of the editors of Scribner's Magazine saw my pictures and heard their story in his church and came to talk the matter over with me. As a result of that talk, I wrote an article that appeared in the Christmas Scribner's 1889 under the title How the Other Half Lives and made an instant impression. That was the beginning of better days. So in other words, in modern parlance, he is repurposing his content yes. here, and very wisely, too. Yes. Today, the, the sort of story would be that a blog editor was offering him a listicle, you know, of his... <laughs> that's like the most depressing thing I've said in yes. the last hour. Journalism in the 21st century, folks. <laughs> and this was not, by the way, the last time that he would rework it. Obviously, his, his article for Scribner's ran... 20 pages long with photos. And as the author Tom Buckswinty points out in his excellent biography of Reese, Reese's article for Scribner's fit in well, actually, with other literary magazines of the day, which were regularly publishing extensive pieces about geography and ethnography and anthropology. He writes, Reese's Scribner's piece took its place alongside such stories as My Journey to Congo in the Century and Jamaica New and Old in Harper's, not entirely unlike the anthropologically-minded travel writers in whose company he found himself, he took his readers into a world vastly different from their own. 
But Reese had not traveled thousands of miles to get his story, and his observations were of a people who lived right next door. You know, I never really thought about Reese's writing as travel writing, but he definitely was using many of the same techniques to take his readers into places they'd never visited or never would visit. Which, you know, like you mentioned before, he'd been doing this for years as a police reporter. But this article in Scribner's was essentially a much more compact version of the book that would come later with many of the same elements. He provided this overview of the city slums and tenements and the ethnic groups living in the neighborhoods and the plight of the city's, by that time, 1.6 million poor residents. And he added that there was a dangerous threat to democracy as well, because their awful living conditions could spark a revolution. So when did all of this finally become a book? Almost immediately, because after the Scribner's piece was published, Reese received a letter from Jeanette Gilder, who was the editor of The Critic, another magazine, asking him um, if he had thought about turning this article into a book. And like that, he had a book deal and started in on writing the book in January of 1890, working late at night after his day job as a reporter, and the book was published that November. Wow, that is some efficient writing and editing and publishing. Yeah, well, I mean, most of the material was already inside him. I mean, he'd spent years walking those streets, hanging out at the police station, you know, going along on police inspections and health inspections. His best friend, Nagel, was the director of statistics for the health department, you know, which makes a lot of sense when you read the book. I mean, it's packed just with numbers and stats. Even though he had these connections, it's true, but this is still quite an accomplishment. And it did take its toll. These long, long days of working and writing. And by the way, he was still delivering lectures at the same time. The week before he finished his book, during a lecture that he was giving at a church, I think because of his exhaustion, he just had this kind of of out-of-body experience that made him think that he should actually be sitting down watching him give the lecture. So he decided (laughs) to stop delivering the lecture and sit down and take a seat and look up at the screen for five whole minutes while everybody kind of stared (laughs) at him. And then he kind of came to, shook it off, stood back up and finished the lecture and decided, you know, maybe it's time to wrap up the book. And sounds like he could use some sleep also. (laughs) But how did this other half, when it came out as a book, how did it differ from the previous iterations of this material? Well, for one thing, he had a lot more space. My copy that I have right here is 200 pages long, Mm -hmm. uh, not even counting the photos at the end. The original edition had 44 illustrations, only 15 of which were actual photographs. The rest were like woodcuts of the original photographs. But that alone, those photos in the book, was groundbreaking. And the subject matter was also much broader, right? Yes, he has so much more space to go into the whole history of the tenements and tell the story of how they got to where they were at that moment. He doesn't just tell the story of the rise of tenement apartment buildings in New York, 
although he covers that very thoroughly. He tells a whole history of the different kinds of tenements. But the book also really tells the story of the city's poor. And he includes dozens of character sketches of these residents and really hundreds of statistics to make his case. And so really, his book binds these two subjects together, the tenements and the city's poor residents, reminding the reader, for example, at the time of publication, that there were more than 37,000 tenements in New York City, which was Manhattan and part of the Bronx, in which a whopping 1.25 million people lived, including more than 163,000 children. More than 1 million people in city tenements. So, I mean, that means, of course, that the book is far more than just the Lower East Side and Mulberry Bend, which was kind of a base for him. This was like the whole city. But his main premise here is that the city's poverty problem was actually being caused by these deplorable tenements. They were the cause. The New Yorkers who lived there didn't deserve to be poor. They were kept poor and they were prevented from succeeding because of their poor living conditions, especially because of the lack of clean drinking water and lack of fresh air and sunshine, and because the jobs that they had didn't pay a living wage. You know, he also has a, a very particular American up-from-the-bootstraps type of philosophy. And he offers repeated examples of how charities that just offer handouts, how that fails, while those offering the needy the ability to help themselves succeed. This is a truly American spin on charity. But I do want to also address something uncomfortable here, and that is the way that Reese characterizes various ethnic groups in this book. He writes entire ethnicities off, just entirely off as dirty or clean or hardworking or lazy. It's all these generalizations. It's, it's pretty hard to read sometimes. And I felt it very distracting, you know, from the larger message that he is making throughout the book. He paints very broad caricatures of all of the main groups at the time, offering Chapters on the Italians, the Chinese, Jews, quote, Bohemians, Blacks, characterizing them in ways that are sometimes instructive and sometimes very problematic and even racist. What do you mean by instructive? Well, because he actually dives into the minute details of how they worked, for example. You know, which jobs were open to them, how many pennies... Um, the cigar makers were paid per dozen cigars rolled, how much various shirt makers made per dozen, etc. I mean, it's really eye-opening to get down into the nitty-gritty, the details of these industries. And he does it to prove a point that the city's poorest residents were being exploited for their labor. And then also that they were being overcharged for their terrible housing, housing that, he believed, kept them down and prevented them from succeeding. And yet, he's still got all of these ethnic caricatures. That are absolutely horrible to read today. There's really no other way to put it. I mean, I will just give one mild example from Chapter 5 on the Italians in New York. 
Reese calls the Italian community, quote, picturesque, if not very tidy. And he writes, the Italian comes in at the bottom, and in the generation that came over the sea, he stays there. In the slums, he is welcomed as a tenant who makes less trouble than the contentious Irishman or the order-loving German, that is to say, is content to live in a pigsty and submits to robbery at the hands of the rent collector without murmur. Later, he calls them all gamblers who keep a knife handy, but then later in the chapter, he, he writes about their redeeming traits, including that, quote, he is as honest as he is hot-headed. There are no Italian burglars in the rogues gallery. And he also spends a lot of time then addressing the problems facing women, especially working women who were trying to guard their virtue, if you will, and spends a lot of time addressing the problems afflicting the children who were living in the tenements. Okay, but to just add all this up here, okay, like how would you summarize the total message here? Does he have any advice for how to change the situation? Yeah, well, his last chapter is called How the Case Stands, and he really presents it like a closing argument in a court case, spelling out, you know, what we know to be true, which includes one, he numbers them off, one, that we have a tremendous ever-swelling crowd of wage earners, which it is our business to house decently. Two, that it is not housed decently. Three, that it must be so housed here for the present and for a long time to come. Four, that it takes high enough rents to entitle it to be housed as a right. And it goes on and on and on, including that everybody's security depends on it being properly housed. And finally, he makes the point that it it actually pays to provide adequate housing. It makes financial sense for the landlord to improve their housing conditions. So how does it make financial sense? Doesn't, doesn't he want to actually destroy these tenements? Well, he is a realist and a capitalist. He tried here in the book to persuade landlords to fix up their tenements or, or to build better new ones because they would actually attract better behavior. They, they would be easier to run, and they would actually end up making more money in the long run. He was at the forefront of the, quote, model tenement movement. And so in the end, his message is groundbreaking journalism and actually quite radical. And how did this go over with the public? Well, actually, with, with the general public— and with most of the critics, uh, most of whom had never read this sort of expose, uh, this urban expose, and none of whom had ever seen it the way that he presented it, you know, with, with actual photographs. How the Other Half Lives was a bestseller, and it would be for the rest of his life. And he was now financially secure, finally, and he was also famous. Jacob Rees had the ideas and determination to affect real change here in New York City, and he was becoming prominent right when many ideas about progressive reform were being employed to deal with these problems that we've been talking about, not just in New York, but nationwide. And he had thousands and thousands of readers, but were they doing anything more than reading? Were, was anybody acting on these observations that he'd made? Well, definitely one man... 
um, his most important reader, I would say, a passionate, wealthy, well-connected man, colorful figure who was himself a published author, a former state assemblyman, and even a cattle rancher. That's right. I'm talking about Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy. Teddy. A man who was known as a political reformer. He had even run for mayor. I can see how he, he would have been attracted to Reese's ideas. He had truly taken them to heart by the time in the year 1895 that he was made New York Police Commissioner. And at his side, not only as a confidant, but sometimes as an actual working partner, was Jacob Reese. They became quick, fast friends. And I'm sure that after so many years as a police reporter, Reese could probably show Roosevelt, you know, he could show him the ropes down here. They often walked the streets together in disguise, observing the behaviors of other police officers who were often caught sleeping on the job. Even when it was widely known on the force that Roosevelt and Reese would scour the tenement quarters and the most dangerous sections of town, they continued on these, quote, night raids. They were going undercover. I mean, he was literally undercover boss. (laughs) Theodore Roosevelt in a disguise, right? Just striking image. According to Reese, quote, I shall never forget that first morning when we traveled for three hours along 1st and 2nd and 3rd Avenues from 42nd Street to Bellevue and found of 10 patrolmen, just one doing his work faithfully. Two or three were chatting on saloon corners. One was sitting asleep on a butter tub in the middle of the sidewalk, snoring so that you could hear him across the street and was inclined to be, quote, sassy when aroused and told to go about his duty. Mr. Roosevelt was a most energetic roundsman and a fair one to boot, unquote. But beyond catching a few um, bad apples, bad sassy apples on the force, (laughs) Theodore Roosevelt was very influenced by Reese. In 1896, Roosevelt closed all of the police lodging houses, the one, you know, you described Mm -hmm. one earlier in the show, including the lodging house where Reese's dog had cruelly been killed by a police officer. Reese would eventually end all of his lectures with the exclamation, my dog did not die unavenged. Jacob Reese is giving me some very John Wick vibes right there, by the way. But they also tackled, you know, some big projects together. They tackled the demolition of some of, you know, the absolutely worst tenement quarters as well. Yes, and Reese was actually already on that case in 1894 when, with his influence, the city council decided to knock down all the tenements around Mulberry Bend, which was that squalid area that had been such a focus of his work. As the tenements were torn down, he declared, In its place will come trees and grass and flowers, for its dark hovels, light and sunshine and air. And that's exactly what happened three years later in 1897 when the new Mulberry Bend Park opened on this cursed spot. There's now a park designed by Calvert Vox. It's opening reception with Jacob Reese in attendance. Today, this is Columbus Park, right in the heart of Chinatown. A bustling, beautiful place. So then, with that energy, 
Now add Roosevelt in to Reese's influence and fervor. Reese made a list of the worst slums in town, gave that list to Roosevelt, who then ran it up to the health board and then used his influence to convince the city to tear down several additional slum quarters throughout the city. It was a rare opportunity for a non-elected city planner like Jacob Reese to actually be given influence. This is really foreshadowing another unelected city planner Uh we shall get Mm -hmm. to in a minute. In this case, Reese was really defining how social activism should be managed here in these waning moments of the Gilded Age as we were approaching the 20th century. He truly was a beacon of the so-called progressive era, so much so that he almost quit journalism to work directly with social reformers. He didn't. He chose to stay, continuing on as a police reporter for the New York Sun, along with other writing jobs. But he did work closely with those in the settlement house movement, a settlement house being a place that you know more or less embedded into a neighborhood that was in serious, dire need. In the, in the case of New York, they were very often on the Lower East Side. They provided health care, education, daycare, language courses, even exercise courses. So Reese got involved with the movement in 1890 when he worked in developing a settlement house for an Episcopal group known as the Circle of the King's Daughters. Two years later, he assisted them in their move to 48 Henry Street, where they stayed for many, many decades. And in 1901, this settlement house changed its name to the Jacob Reese Settlement House. And believe it or not, they are still around. They have moved... They have resettled, actually, in Western Queens, where they are today. But of course, when many people think about settlement houses, they think of Lillian Wald and the Henry Street Settlement, which we just mentioned in our last show about Seward Park. Lillian Wald was a great proponent, as we mentioned, of public playgrounds. And guess what, Tom? So was Jacob Reese. (laughs) No surprise. He spoke in his lectures about the need for playgrounds. He said, quote, Crime and sunshine could not coexist. Children's playgrounds were like so many life insurance policies for society. Now, as we mentioned last episode, the city wouldn't fund its own playgrounds until 1903, but Reese was involved with many privately funded endeavors, including one in the Tenderloin District at West 28th Street and 11th Avenue, a place that had been nicknamed poverty gap. After it was completed, he said, it was not exactly an attractive place, but the children thought it lovely, and lovely it was for poverty gap, if not for Fifth Avenue, unquote. But then meanwhile, what has happened to his friend Teddy? Seems like he's on a different trajectory here. Yeah, talk about friends in high places now, because Roosevelt, by the end of the century had, by this time, had fought most auspiciously in the Spanish-American War, then almost immediately after became the governor of New York. Then in the year 1900, he became vice president of the United States under William McKinley, who was assassinated the following year, which meant that Roosevelt then rose to the office of the presidency. Okay, talk about a rapid political rise. He was in the White House a mere seven years after his, you know, costume disguised night raids with Jacob Reese. 
just seven years. That's incredible. Did they remain friends throughout that entire period? They were still close friends for the rest of their lives. They would be confidants. Roosevelt actually considered making Reese the governor of the Danish West Indies, oh. a.k.a. today's Virgin Islands. That would be a definite career change, but uh, he didn't take that job. They remained pen pals for much of Roosevelt's presidency, and Teddy even paid a visit to Reese's home which, at this time, was in Richmond Hill, Queens, which is where Reese lived for over two decades. According to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quote, President Roosevelt's special train from Long Island City to Oyster Bay stopped at Richmond Hill for seven and a half minutes this morning, and for seven minutes and 15 seconds, all the folks of that neighborhood heard the president praise their neighbor, Jacob Reese, laud the virtue of strenuosity preach the gospel of decency, and tickle the vanities of the mothers who held babies in their arms. The babies, there were hundreds of them, claimed at least two minutes of the president's limited time, unquote. Let me tell you, because babies just love Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, your own child. <laughs> at, <laughs> right up there with Daniel Tiger. Teddy, teddy Bears, kids. are they named for him? Yes, they are, actually. As they're, they're American as apple pie, Tom. Well, so, yeah, you see, babies clearly love Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yes. In fact, they're as American as Jacob Reese at this point. Now, he was truly proud of his Danish heritage, but by this point considered himself a true American. In the year 1900, he began a lecture series that was more autobiographical in nature, which culminated in the publication of the book, the Making of an American, which you've heard a little bit in today's show. In some quarters, he was even championed as America's most famous immigrant. Now, Reese was using this new book, you know, this version of his own story, to promote Americanness or the idea of an identity that was even greater than a national identity because it could be attained by anybody who wished to come to the United States and assimilate. Okay. You know, Reese and many progressives, you know, this was a commonly thought idea, they thought that shedding or reducing identification as an other would lead to success within America. And, you know, on many levels, it did lead mm -hmm. to success. But, you know, it's also a very oversimplistic idea that ignores the influence of other cultures. And it just wasn't an option for many people besides Still, it's an interesting read. It's an interesting insight into his life and his own myth-making reality. Yeah, and he really goes into deeply personal moments in his life, too. I mean, he writes quite a bit about his wife, Elizabeth, and about the whole courting process that we were talking about before and about how she rejected him several times. Now, Jacob and Elizabeth had lived a happy life together out in Richmond Hill, Queens, even though Jacob was often away. In May of 1905, he was actually on a tour when he got news of his wife's deteriorating health from pneumonia. He immediately rushed to her side, but she hadn't long to live. Elizabeth Reese died soon after at age 52 years old. And in 1905, Jacob Reese was 56 years old. Did he slow down at all? Definitely not. 
He was not a man who knew how to slow down. He went back out on the road. He even took on new projects like the formation of national boys clubs. He even he spoke at the first organizational meeting of the Boy Scouts of America. Hmm. And then eventually he even remarried in 1907, a woman named Mary Phillips. And with this new bride... Reese bought a farm in Barrie, Massachusetts, about 45 minutes outside Worcester. By this point, though, in 1907, was he starting to seem a bit old-fashioned? I mean, especially in New York? His opinions were still valued, even if his influence had noticeably faded by this time. He continued to publish books, accompanied, of course, by lavish touring lectures— even in an era that was discovering the glory of moving pictures Mm. and the thrill of the Nickelodeon. I mean, I think that one can make a convincing case that Reese's magic lanterns helped pave the way for projected entertainment. Uh, Certainly, documentaries could Mm -hmm. probably trace themselves to Jacob Reese, right? But he might not have liked the direction that early motion pictures went into. Well, they were often seen as cheap, not the kind of educational fare that that he had embraced throughout his entire projection career. The world was truly changing, and it would also soon go to war. America would also soon go dry with the passage of prohibition, something that perhaps Mr. Reese would have agreed with. Yeah, Reese was definitely on board with prohibition, but you know, sadly, he would not live to see this new world. He went back on the road, but his health was deteriorating. In September of 1913, he collapsed in Battle Creek, Michigan, with heart problems. He was of such stature at this point in his life that the newspapers carried daily reports of his health on the front page, in many cases, throughout the spring of 1914. It was so on people's mind that even as he lay in poor health in his home in Barrie, Massachusetts... People were planning tributes to him. One New York Times letter writer proclaimed that Mulberry Ben Park uh, be named after him. But the dreaded news sadly came in papers published on May 27, 1914, reporting on the events of the previous day. From the New York Times, quote, Jacob A. Reese, reformer, dead, social worker, who was Roosevelt's ideal American, succumbs to heart disease. Now, of the many tributes that I read in the nation's newspapers, I found this one from the Brooklyn Times Union quite interesting, especially as Reese had once been a Brooklyn newsman himself. Quote, There is no mistake about the belief that Jacob Reese really accomplished things that are now an inherent part of the city's civilization. He was not always chairman of the committee nor the man who drew the statutes, but the improvement of tenement houses, reforms in the police court and the treatment of poor offenders, the establishment of playgrounds, were accomplished principally by the advocacy of his heart full of love for the poor, that saw how the other half lives and made it known. It would be difficult indeed to go about the city and find a good work accomplished for the poor in the last generation that was not set going and supported by Jacob Reese. These things are permanent. But 
But while Mulberry Bend Park was never named for Jacob Reese, the city opted to name it after Columbus, there are many things in the city today that are named for him. In fact, almost immediately after his death in 1914, a plot of land in the Rockaways, which Jacob Reese had actually advocated the city purchase for use as a public park, well, it was finally opened and named Jacob Reese Park. It was massively expanded by Robert Moses in the 1930s, and though often in poor shape throughout the decades, it remains a beloved spot during the summer. And in particular, one area that has, since the 1940s, been very, very popular with the LGBT community. A fact that perhaps would have surprised Jacob Rees. Though again, we run into dangerous territory when we try to see Jacob Rees through the modern lens of today. True. Now, as you can imagine, Rees has had an interesting legacy going in and out of vogue over the decades. In 1941, a new housing project was announced for the area of the Lower East Side, today's East Village, on the far east side from 6th to 13th Street, a project named for Jacob Reese. After many years of urban renewal clearance, wiping away old tenements that he might surely have detested, the Jacob Reese houses were completed on January 17th, 1949. New, modern living conditions. Done in the spirit of Reese, but with that Robert Moses touch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think that Jacob Reese and Robert Moses would have gotten along? Of course, being unelected city planners who wielded a lot of power. I'm not for sure on a personal level, but Moses certainly compared himself favorably to Jacob Reese. In fact, he wrote an article for the New York Times Magazine in 1949 called The Living Heritage of Jacob Reese. He wrote, quote, What he thought and did still affects the city, and many of us continue to live by his ideals. And so today, here, we're celebrating the legacy of Jacob Rees and his high ideals, but not without a few critiques and caveats of our own. I prefer to lean heavily upon Jacob Rees's photography, even though some of his photographs could be said to wallow in New York's most squalid places. Really, at the end of the day, those faces come through, the people come through. Those faces that were lit by flash powder from an age when people didn't really pose or put up much of a front in front of a camera. The overall effect of Reese's photography changed the world's views on poverty. To quote from Lisa Hostetler from the International Center of Photography, at a time when the poor were usually portrayed in sentimental genre scenes, Reese often shocked his audience by revealing the horrifying details of real life in poverty-stricken environments. His sympathetic portrayal of his subjects encouraged their humanity and bravery amid deplorable conditions and encouraged a more sensitive attitude towards the poor in this country. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where you will find some of these very photographs that we've been talking about, some of the most famous images ever taken of New York City. 
In addition, we'll provide recommendations of other shows to check out from our back catalog that touch upon Reese's life. Because we've talked about so many of these things, from the tenements Mm -hmm. to the Lower East Side to specific streets and to the reform movement. There's a lot Mm -hmm. there. Now, today we've given you the other half of the Gilded Age today. But for more stories from this era... Check out The Gilded Gentleman, our spin-off podcast hosted by Carl Raymond. December is going to be a huge month, maybe mm. the biggest of all on his show, with some amazing holiday-themed shows, some food shows. Tom, there's even a show on the history of champagne. Now, that's quite <laughs> a different direction than today's show, but it's still a wonderful show, and you'll all love it, so check it all I'm out. Having- I'm having a little Gilded Age whiplash here, Greg. (laughs) Be sure to check out the Gilded Gentleman podcast. A huge thank you to everybody who supports the Bowery Boys on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Your support allows us to spend all of our time producing this podcast and a new episode every two weeks. And we have a new podcast series that is for patrons only. It's called Side Streets. We have had two episodes already, and a third one is coming out for this week. We will be discussing New York City during the holidays and our own reflections and nostalgia upon that. Sign up now so you don't miss an episode of Side Streets and join the gang. That's patreon.com slash Boys. We'd also love to have you join us in the streets um, at Bowery Boys Walks. We have fantastic holiday-related tours. Our Christmas in Old New York tour is back in the streets, and also a special virtual Christmas in Old New York taking place on Wednesday, December 14th, 2022, at 7 p.m. Eastern. That, plus plenty of Gilded Age tours up and down Fifth Avenue, through Greenwich Village, and yes, around the Lower East Side. Get tickets for all of them at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for listening and joining us today for our 400th episode. We're on the way to 500. <laughs> so who will that be? Who will the subject of that one be? Well, you, you have 100 shows to guess. So. And to send in your suggestions. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.